Mr. Brad Marvel is a former air defense artillery officer turned senior research analyst at TRADOC G2. In this discussion, we discuss training methodology, his authorship of Army ATP 7-100.3, social media, and systems warfare. It's a fascinating episode that begins with a conversation on effective training methodology and ends with grappling with the fundamentals on the effect on affecting an enemy's will to fight. Let's get after it. We have a professional obligation for the ethical application of, uh, of force. You can have a growth mindset where you're always achieving for better. This is about us, about our guard, our reputation. We are all in this together. Outthink, outmaneuver, and outfight. If you wage war, do it energetically and with severity. This is the only way to make it shorter and consequently less inhumane. I am uh, Chapel Sanders. Welcome to the Raven Report. I have uh, the Dark Rifle S2, Mr. or uh, Captain now, newly promoted, Paul Chang, uh, along with uh, Mr. Brad Marvel, who's the Senior Research Analyst at uh, Tradoc G2. So, Mr. Marvel. Yeah, thank you very much for uh, having me on. Uh, <clears throat> looking forward to meeting you guys in person a little bit uh, later this summer. It's, it's a, that's a pretty exciting event. Um, my entire organization is kind of interested in how you guys are doing this. This is um, the education on the PLA has become one of, I mean, it's probably, it is literally our number one priority. And, um, seeing how units try to tackle that problem is very informative for us because we see how younger soldiers are, are learning effectively and we see the approaches that that uh, units are taking in both individual and collective training and it, you guys are one of the early adopters of this stuff so it, it's a uh, right it's yeah, a that... really cool opportunity yeah, no, we're super happy to have you. Um, I'm, you kind of stoked my curiosity. Like, what what's some of the other uh, techniques that other people are using to uh, to kind of get the message out of this is how the PLA fights? Yeah, I mean, you know, the the short answer to that is a whole lot of different things, and it, it that ranges the gamut from 150 slide PowerPoint presentations all the way to really pretty well done multimedia type uh productions and and the 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 challenge you know and this is something that senior leaders face it in every realm not just in in you know learning about the PLA but it's there's a lot of times there's a difference generationally between how an older generation learned and how a younger generation learned and the G2 I think is doing they're trying to get ahead of that curve in a way that most military organizations don't and providing different ways of getting the material out to the force. And the, the problem, at least from where I sit is it's, we put out a whole lot of information, right? And, and it's not just us. It's, it's the folks at NGIC, the folks at DIA, the, the whole Intel community puts out boatloads of information, but curating it to, the the audience that really needs to hear it, making sure that the audience is hearing what they need to hear and that they're they're absorbing it, that they're learning it effectively. That's the challenge. So the I think the general approach is the the more things that we have, the more techniques and the more uh, delivery methods that we have available, the better. 
and let units sort of design their approach the way that they think is the best way for their soldiers to learn. But even that, you know, it, units don't necessarily have a, um, a understanding of what the, the best techniques are. And, is it, you know, it, it's a, an institutional problem, a big educational problem. And it's it that's a it's a big challenge, you know. It's there's a lot that goes into it. That's not just learning the the X's and O's, the basic facts, but learning how people learn and trying to communicate effectively to them. I really enjoy the challenge. And like I, I said earlier, I really enjoy you got your your approach to this is unique and and uh, and forward looking. So I'm excited to see how that uh, that works out for you. Yeah. Go ahead, Karen. Yeah. So, Mr. Marble, so I know that you are the author of the ATP 7-100.3 Chinese Tactics. And to my knowledge, this is an, the first Chinese Tactics manual that Army has published. Um, is there any reason um, that it got published in 2021? I know in 2022, National Defense Strategy identified PRC as one of the top level defense priorities. So is this somewhere um, in line with that before that was published? Yeah, the, the background of the ATP goes back it, I, quite a bit further than the, the contemporary interest in the DOD in, in China. And so in that sense, it's kind of coincidental, right? It's uh, cool. really what you're looking at is trying to adopt our op for the way we portray the generic op for moving away from the old russia soviet model and sl slash the the isis you know coin type model and trying to present a modern peer threat and so the the old op for model was uh yeah i seven one hundred something it, it was a tc it wasn't an atp there's some uh difference between the two but um anyway it, it was in a lot of ways kind of obsolete and the directive that our office got from some echelon way up the chain was we want to start teaching real world stuff we don't want to just make it a generic op for anymore and so that's that was the basis behind kicking off this thing where they were going to write four atps one for each of the um most prominent threat actors, that being uh, Russia, China, um, North Korea, and Iran. And so I I basically just volunteered to write China. I thought it would be a really awesome project. And I it was. I loved it. I I thoroughly enjoyed the um, the challenge of writing that. Uh, Russia has been in development for a, quite a while they started writing that several months before i started writing china and it it is currently in worldwide staffing phase so it's it's been kicked out to the entire army and intel community for their comments and you can imagine given a relatively recent world events it's gotten a great deal of scrutiny that um I wouldn't say China. China got a lot of scrutiny, but it was from a relatively small audience, right? The at that time, the DoD audience that was really seriously focused on China was pretty small. In the last year, everyone's become kind of a Russia expert, or a, you know, again become a Russian expert. So they they're getting a lot of feedback from a, a much wider um, a 
group of people than I than I got. So that's good. It's kind of tedious to deal with, but it's you know it'll help the final product in the end. Um, as for Iran and North Korea, I I wrote Iran, uh, and the draft of that is complete, so it's awaiting uh, senior approval, and it'll go on to um, to worldwide staffing at some point in the relatively near future. And North Korea is kind of on the back burner right now. I actually don't think we have anyone working on that in real time. But anyway, those those ATPs are designed to be the uh, the guidelines for employing or building an op for going forward using the the date methodology and the the date world construct and the they're supposed to be a relatively up-to-date ic informed view of the forces that they're trying to replicate and that that's a pretty significant shift from how we used to do things right the, the generic op four was not named it wasn't based on a, a specific real world actor it wasn't based on a, a specific real world tactics it was kind of a amalgamation of different practices from around the world and so now what we're trying to provide the force is very specific usable real world material that they can if we obviously we due to the various regulations we can't train against a um, a real world opponent in an unclassified exercise, but we can build a, a constructed opponent using the tactics of a real world threat, and that's what the ATPs are about. So it was just kind of coincidental. Um, <laughs> one of the the things I lead my presentations with. Uh, from time to time is the the ATP came out a day or two before the chief of staff gave the army new marching orders, which was he he wants the army to know the PLA as well as we, we knew the Red Army back during the Cold War. And so we use that quote as kind of a, a kickoff, you know, to any uh, education session that we do. And he just just so happened to say that a day or two before the ATP was published. It was totally coincidental. And that's you know reflective of world changes, policy changes, and so on. Just so happened that the ATP was getting published right about the same time. So the fortuitous um, coincidence, but um, one that we are we are able to to support that new vision for the army in the relatively quickly. Yeah, great to yeah hear about the background. So um, I saw your so first when I started um, studying about the Chinese tactics and about China. Uh, the first video I saw on YouTube was your uh, Near Peer China video that was on YouTube from Armenian University. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and um, and Chap um, Captain Sanders and I noticed that um, on the video, you and your researchers make the case that we have a force that is largely ignorant about Chinese tactics and their um, in about China in general. And for me, myself, as an S2, when I went through the... Uh, MI officer transition course when I was transitioning from the infantry officers to MI officer. So they they mentioned about your Chinese tactics ATP, but we never actually opened the book and studied it. And I it is my understanding it is the same way with the MI triple C and MI Bullock. So if China is something we have to keep in mind, when when do you think it will be actually incorporated into actual um army schools and we'll actually open this and study this yeah um that's a, a topical question i i have worked with 
uh, officer education proponents at um, man maneuver center fire center uh, intel center um, maneuver support center and they are all and, and other uh, folks in the G2 have worked at, with other COEs um, they are all in the process of updating their POIs to okay. incorporate a lot of this stuff. And, and MI in particular, they, they, and MI and Maneuver in particular really jumped on this. Uh, when the ATP was published, they used that as uh, kind of a starting point for developing a lot of their own material that was fantastic. And I got to, I was able to review a lot of that and, and work uh, in concert with them on a lot of that. And they did, they just, they did a really, really excellent job of building out a new POI that uses China as the baseline threat. And the part of the problem with doing that is when you're changing something that's central to a POI that causes changes, you know, all over the POI, right? It, you have, it's not just one class you have to change. Now you have to change the uh, the practical exercises. You have to change your, uh, a lot of your material, all of that stuff. So it, it just takes a while. It's a lot of work to do and to, it, the army has to validate all of it. I don't really know what the process is for, for getting that stuff certified, but I know it's very complicated and time consuming. Yeah, have you got any um, pushback on that? Because I would imagine just the uh, um, the the balancing feedback loop that the key tries to keep the army the same no matter what, so that way no one has to do any extra work would probably rebuff that. So I'm kind of curious if you if you um, if you encountered any friction with with getting that implemented. Uh, from my end, not at all. It's it's mostly uh, instructors who are they've been told by you know the CG or someone at that level hey redo your poi to to modernize it and and so on so they are they're all about it they're a hundred percent engaged now whether or not they got significant interference from the bureaucracy while doing it i would bet they probably did probably quite a bit right. um but yeah i didn't have any visibility on that so that's that's those great folks out there doing that work uh, that's super awesome to hear. I, I have a good friend of mine who always says that uh, the the chief enemy of the U.S. Army is not the Red Army, but the red tape. <laughs> so, so yeah, I'm, yeah, I think that I, that's true pretty much everywhere you look, um, yeah. <laughs> particularly in the the entirety of the institutional side of the military. I think that right becomes more of a challenge the more institutional you get. Right. Yeah, Paul, you had a question for him. Yeah. So, so in. So as far as uh, company and platoons are concerned, so we are prepping, preparing to go to NTC again in uh, years down the road. So it will be it'll be a few years until we actually will be studying, fighting against the Chinese opponent at NTC. Yeah, that's another uh, top, very topical question. At yesterday, as a matter of fact, I uh, had an email about that. Um, that was the point that was the central point of discussion at this year's op4 conference was how do we change the op4 to make it look more chinese slash olvanan and less russian slash denovian and the folks that do op4 modernization are the ones who are 
sort of leading that charge and they're they're doing everything that they can from changing the way vehicles look to changing the tactics that the op 4 uses to changing the um the uh capabilities that are reflected in their miles setup and their sim setup and all that stuff and they the uh, the thing that i uh took a look at yesterday was actually just a big chart like a, a powerpoint chart that had general trends with uh denovia and then how the plaa does it and then how olvana does it and how we're how we're getting at that in modernizing op4 and so a lot of their resources are directed at exactly that at at uh changing the way the op4 does business to be more chinese and uh it's starting to there's starting to field stuff like as as we speak they're getting uh new visual modifications for vehicles they're uh adopting new techniques and and tactics and equipment for stuff like surveillance and reconnaissance and so on and it's it's really cool how um how open-minded they are about changing you know the the op4 takes a lot of pride in being the op4 and uh organizations like that can be dogmatic sometimes and they are not at all they are they're all about hey we're still going to be the op4 we're still going to win most of the time we still want to dominate these training exercises but we want to present an opponent that looks more like the pla and and less like the the old russian slash soviet model so um that those transitions are underway as we speak and i i we sent some of our colleagues down to uh erwin last week or this week something something like that um to sort of get a uh look firsthand at how that stuff's going at least at the ntc um and they're doing a lot of the same stuff at all the ctcs so i the force in general can expect a a more chinese focused op for it at all of the ctcs and any army level training exercise that they're involved in that's pretty awesome because you think about like if, if you're if you're the op four at one of those ctcs and you're trying to learn how to fight um you know try to present a chinese like enemy then whenever you basically return to the force you're gonna be able to have the best kind of like red hat lens at an MDMP board because you're going to say like, well, if I was, you know, a, a Chinese officer, I would do X, Y, or Z. So it's pretty cool that, that you know, to kind of see the the op four getting involved like that because it's, it's only going to make us all better in the long term. So. Yeah, absolutely. I, the, and I think that's that's been true of uh, of op four folks for a long time. You know, they, they get very well informed about that red hatting kind of stuff and then go out to you know the the next level maybe they're they were a commander in the op four unit now they're going out to be an s3 somewhere and have a very different perspective and i particularly when we're looking at such a major shift in the way we we train and the way we we look at the transition not just to the pla as a our pacing threat but also the shift from coin operations to Lisco operations. I, that's those guys are going to be uh, a very valuable asset, I think. And the the op four folks that I come in contact with are are fantastic. They're they're very very um, capable officers, leaders, NCOs, etc. And they, um, you know, the the more that they learn about the PLA, the better it's going to be for all of us. I think. Right. 
So um, I have a question for you on like a, my understanding is, and bear in mind that I'm just a, a chaplain from South Arkansas. So bear with me, but like uh, the, uh, the Chinese uh, kind of take a, a very um, kind of XETC type approach to the way they, they tra train the army that it's very kind of like force on force free play. Let's try to like learn how to, how to be better. Whereas opposed to like, you look at the Russian army, they generally um, they they're a big battle drill army, which is kind of comforting from from a you know a, an American soldier standpoint because you know that like if it's not in their playbook they're probably not going to do it, um, and being so centrally controlled that like they 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 only they're kind of like a, a dog that only knows so many tricks. Whereas we train chaos, and so like we're we're, we're very comfortable just kind of like adjusting on the fly. Um, can you uh, like speak to that? Like like how do like what should we do? to prepare our forces to be able to fight somebody who also prepares to fight like we do, that it's not necessarily like we're, we're looking for a play, but we're looking for um, how to adjust to somebody who's constantly like agilely adjusting to us simultaneously. Yeah. I, I love your use of the word chaos there. Uh, several <laughs> of our leadership folks call a, uh, a CTC rotation, full spectrum chaos. And I, I think that's a, a great description. And it also describes what the PLA is trying to do with their CTCs. I mean, it's the, the same basic construct. You have a free play with a, a free thinking op for, and uh, there's a very good chance that you're going to lose. In fact, you're in, in both CTCs, you're expected to lose and then learn from losing. That's the the i wouldn't it's not necessarily the the point of the exercise but it, that's how most of them go and it's kind of how we have adopted a, a culture of learning and pla is trying to do the same thing the i think it is it's important to note this is what the pla wants to do and they they've they're running into a lot of problems every you know everything from institutional learning to base fundamental aspects of Chinese society and everything in between that that's preventing them from really being able to fully adopt and embrace this the same idea of a, a learning culture um, but they uh, they're committed to it and I they tend to meet their objectives for the most part when you look at how they want to adopt or evolve their their forces and so it's a good bet they're going to get there at some point in the relatively near future. And so what does that look like as far as training and, and uh, how do you, how you present an opponent who fights the same way you do? Uh, that's a, that's a big uh, change. And, and a big part of it is depicting the op for accurately, you know, and instead of having an op for that goes out and, and runs the playbook and then you run the counter to the playbook and win, that's sort of, you know, that's how the Chinese used to train, right? It was a very scripted, uh, very uh, structured environment, and there wasn't any room for creativity. How we do it now, it, the, when we established the CTCs, you know, back in the, man, the early 80s was the time frame we were establishing that. Uh, one of the critical components of that method of training was having an op for that embraced the chaos right and sort of unleashing those leaders to act on their own initiative and be creative and so on and so i'd argue in a lot of ways we are already replicating the the hardest part of that training challenge which is to 
make your training full spectrum chaos. And by doing that, we are going to replicate what the PLA is trying to do conceptually, which is to, to be comfortable with ambiguity and have creativity at low levels and all that stuff. Um, the, I think the thing that's harder to replicate is, are the subtleties that we see between, say, an American infantry brigade and a Chinese infantry brigade when it comes to things like organization and the way they uh, employ weapon systems, the way they uh, plan operations, the way they um, task organize. All of that stuff is subtly different. And our op for as hard as they, as much as they want to replicate, they're still U.S. Army personnel, right? So they went through U.S. Army training. Uh, they were educated. Their PME is all U.S. Army based, and it's one of those things you have to guard against when you're looking at presenting a threat. Is what we call mirroring. That is to say, when we look at how to uh, to um, address a problem and we think, well, how would the Chinese solve this problem? Our tendency is to address the problem in the same way we would, right? It, and that's just, that's sort of a human nature thing. We, it's very hard to account for all of the significant cultural and social and, and organizational differences and look at it truly from a Chinese perspective, as opposed to, well, this is how we would do it and how we would do it makes a lot of sense to me. So that's probably how the Chinese would do it. Um, so it, yeah, it, that, uh, the, the, um, I, I, to conclude, I think that we do a really good job of replicating the, the free thinking enemy. I think what we need to get better at is replicating an enemy that, that operates with that, um, that specific set of characteristics that defines the PLA. Right. Yeah. It seems like, you know, Chinese culture is going to be very, uh, you know, patriarchal. It's going to, you know, like the communist party runs most of this stuff. So it's going to be very hierarchical from my understanding. Like I said, I'm just a chap from South Arkansas. And then like, I know their, their language, um enables them to view the world in a, in a way that's a little bit different than us so do you have any like uh, insider have you ever seen anybody uh do that well try to like try to replicate uh the way another culture would think about about a problem and i don't mean to put you on the spot but I'm, i am kind of curious and yeah i mean that that's um that's kind of a central question for for all the parts of the ic that are trying to to teach the dod about china um again we, when we looked going back historically look at how that relationship evolved between the u.s and the soviet union throughout the cold war there were huge differences in the in every aspect of the different cultures between the u.s and the soviets and we tried to make um, we tried to learn as much as we could about the Soviet Union, about uh, how Soviet officers did their thing and how Soviet soldiers were trained and, and so on and so forth. And we weren't always right. There were a lot of, a lot of uh, mistaken assumptions, a lot of mistaken pieces of analysis, but we got most of it right. We were, we were pretty close on in most respects. The, the challenge with China is it's the 
cultural differences are much more pronounced between uh, the U.S. and Russia or the Soviet Union and the U.S. and China. And China, for most Americans, it's a very distant, very exotic kind of entity. We don't know much about the Communist Party. It's a very insular organization. It's a very secretive organization. We don't know, um, or at least the most Americans don't know much uh, detail about Chinese culture. Very few, Amer very few Americans, to include myself, don't speak Chinese in any meaningful way. And all of that stuff kind of adds up when you're trying to understand a, a different country that is very different from your own. It, it, it's hard, you know, without uh, serious cultural immersion and, and language training and all of that stuff that takes literally years. The best way to do it is to just listen to, to the experts and, uh, you know, take what they say into account. And the, the problem with that is the that's teaching right you know that that's um an, an education thing and it's so complicated it's just, there's so much to it that i mean it it you kind of run into the thing eventually when you're learning about china is how detailed do you want to go how much does the average soldier really need to know about Chinese culture in order to learn about the PLA. And I, I don't really have a, a good answer for that. I, it's, that's a, you know, that's a, a much higher pay grade than mine, um, how, how that's going to work out. But the good news is in, from where I sit, we have all of the information available that we need. We have uh, world-class experts who know uh, everything that there is to know about uh the Chinese language, Chinese culture, Chinese government, their um, economy, all of that stuff is available to us. The challenge then is, is curating that in a way that's meaningful to, to soldiers and leaders in the U.S. Army. Yeah, that takes us full circle back to uh, new ways to, to learn, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, uh, go ahead, Paul. So, um, Mr. Marble, so tying these cultural differences into um, the tactical operations. So in your um, ATP, um, you talk about tactical system warfare that uh, Chinese utilize. And then the one interesting statement I read is that system warfare differs from the traditional Western military thinking in that it does not necessarily consider the human doing the fighting as the most important element of a combat system. So what does that mean? So I know in the U.S. Army, we value the human aspect. We focus on the leader development and how we train the soldiers. So is is that not the, necessarily the case for the Chinese Army? Yeah, that, that uh, man, there's a lot that goes into that. They, so you, when you look at uh, the way they understand system warfare, system confrontation, it's everything everything on the battlefield is a system or a system of systems. And by targeting uh, parts of that system that specifically those that um, affect other components, uh, multiple components. So things like uh, communications network or, or uh, sensors that feed multiple uh, 
uh, different decision makers, things like that, you can erode the enemy system and and thus create a window of opportunity for yourself. So that that's sort of the central thesis of um, system warfare, system confrontation. Uh, the the way the PLA looks at the human is just as a part of that system, right? So it's it's just like any other component and it can be exploited or it can be um, degraded or it can be neutralized or it, it, the, any effect that you're looking at for any other component can apply just as equally to the human that's operating it. So the the way that they look at that is the what is the thing that um that is most important to a human that is operating as a component of this system and their answer is information the uh, controlling information flow both the information that is going into the human component of the system and the information that's coming out that's what they want to manipulate and so that's that's how they view the human component as a part of that the what they call an operational system is the the best way to corrupt or degrade interfere with information and gaining that information advantage is a really important part of their uh basic approach to war fighting gaining an information advantage is a critical component to every military plan and so on but i think what is the big difference between the way we look at at combat and particularly close combat ground combat uh type situations the way the pla looks at it is we look at it for the most part as we're trying to uh it, it's very we're very terrestrially oriented right we our op orders tend to be we're going to go here we're going to do this we're going to take that hill we're going to destroy this unit we're going to uh it uh simple order that is executed audaciously right that's the the u.s uh paradigm for for tactical leadership the pla tends to look at it more as uh how can we achieve a given condition using anything so we're we're the condition that we're trying to achieve is the we want the enemy to believe that they've lost and we can either do that by imposing our will physically and compelling them to withdraw or quit or, or surrender, whatever the case is, or we can make them believe that their further resistance is is uh, useless and, and compel them to quit, retire, whatever, that way. And so you look at it through the, the system warfare construct, you can kill a tank by shooting it you can kill a tank by uh denying it the fuel that it needs to operate or you can kill a tank by uh by uh disorienting the crew isolating the crew or causing the crew to believe that they are in a uh a impossible position and that further resistance is no longer um they, that they shouldn't resist any further. So the um, the way this works out in terms of the system warfare construct is how if when we're looking at a problem like how do we destroy a tank or a tank company or an ABCT, we have a bunch of different avenues that we are going to try to explore for for achieving that, and we are going to 
attack the avenue that we view is the most vulnerable. So whether that's a direct force-on-force uh, -force confrontation, maybe it's uh, sinking the ABCT when it's still on a ship out in the middle of the Western Pacific. Maybe it's destroying the uh, supplies, particularly the fuel and ammo that that unit needs to operate. Or maybe it's making the leaders and soldiers of that unit believe that they've lost the battle and that they need to to retreat or surrender or whatever the case is. So it, you, can, you contrast that with the way the U.S. Army does things. We are op orders tend to be like we are going to attack and destroy this brigade that is at this location at this time and our subordinates you you all figure out how you're going to do it that that is our that's mission command right that's we give a, a clear simple directive and we trust our subordinates to go out and execute that we tend to prefer direct aggressive kinetic solutions for that kind of kind of problem set um so it's, I always hesitate to, uh, when I'm ex trying to explain that difference, it uh, it can come off, I think, as maybe the, the PLA is, um, they want to avoid close contact or like they're not comfortable with basic maneuver warfare or something like that. That's not the case at all. They, they are just as comfortable employing a, a direct maneuver type confrontation as they are trying to dominate the information realm. The main difference is in how they prioritize it. And so the, the, the idea of prioritizing information dominance and looking at the human as a subcomponent of the system, it's, it's kind of a subtle difference, but it, uh, it presents itself in interesting ways, especially when you're making decisions about, you know, what systems to prioritize and and how to deploy systems tactically and so on. But uh, yeah, I, I think it. All that being said, I think that that is the most important difference to capture when we're looking at how to deploy an op for how to really present a realistic uh, depiction of how the PLA wants to operate. Um, and that's one of those things like we were just talking about the cultural differences that uh, U.S. Army leaders are brought up in the using MDMP and, and using um, the 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 op order construct, the basic tactical construct that we're all very familiar with. And so looking at it from a different way, planning and operating in a different way, that that's hard. That's that's the hard part, and that's the the big uh, difference in culture and whatnot that uh, that we need to figure out ways to get around. Yeah. So, Mr. Marvel, what I hear you saying is is that like the PLA is more focused on achieving defeat as like a psychological um, condition rather than destruction, and they kind of look at you know fighting is inefficient, so therefore we don't really want to fight. We want we want we want to create a situation and make them just want to quit. Um, and if that's the case, then like, how do we protect the force from that defeat mechanism that they're going to try to employ on us? And then how do we also turn the tables on them and actually make them want to, to quit fighting? Yeah, I think that, uh, you said that really well, that, that is a, a good way of describing it. Now, I, I will say it's, it's important to note that's not the, that's maybe their, their first priority, but it's not their only tool in the toolbox, right? right? They can, they can go after you in the same way that we, that we do. That's a core competency for them, just like it is for us. Um, but that being said, I think 
what you're alluding to is my biggest concern when we're looking at uh, open conflict between the U.S. and our partners and the PLA is what happens in that information realm when we are under uh, an attack that is as relentless and as uh, dedicated as what the PLA says they want to do. And that is not something that we have ever experienced. That right. That's not a thing that the U.S. military has any real world um, experience in dealing with. And um, there's a lot of good thinking out there about how to solve that problem. Ideas like, um, you know, uh, resiliency and, and uh careful filtering of information, information security, all that stuff that's all uh, talked about all over the DOD pretty regularly. But um, a big part of that problem in a training environment is how do we replicate that? We're very, very good at replicating vehicle A shooting at vehicle B, right? We're super comfortable with how we do that in a training exercise. But how do we replicate, uh, you know, a, an information attack that's that's targeting an engaged brigade and trying to undermine the morale and willpower of that brigade by, say, targeting family members that are back home and trying to to impede the the ability of that brigade command team to execute its mission efficiently because they're worried about something back home that they, you know, that's the sort of thing that we have we're not really um, as comfortable replicating in training. And I think that as we evolve our training going forward i think that's the most important thing to start wrapping our heads around yeah that um i gotta find it somewhat concerning that we're kind of at a point where we don't really know how, how to re replicate it we don't really know how to train for it i was just talking to um a a major at, at west point uh about potentially like studying the uh the will to fight and she like her response to me was that that well, no one really has a good answer of, of like how to measure the will of fight, how to judge the will of fight, how to manipulate the will of fight. And then she's like, look at like Ukraine. Nobody expected the Ukrainians to go like hog wild and have this massive impenetrable will to, to beat the Russian army. But and then at the same time, nobody expected the, the Afghan army to just collapse underneath the Taliban after years of, of training and stuff. So she's like, how do, how do you build the will of fight? And how do you uh, manipulate it? So, um, yeah, I mean, if you have any insight on that i'm, I'm all ears so. yeah i mean that's that's a uh that cuts across so many different academic and military disciplines it's that's a huge question um there i i think it's dia one of the the um agencies out there has what i think is actually a pretty good product it's a, a chart basically that lists all the big components of will to fight and assesses them and and attempts to create an answer to that question and it's as good an attempt as i've seen by anybody to create a product like that but it's still it you know it it's so hard to to really nail that down especially beforehand you know before before the shooting starts and I think it only gets harder when you're looking at individual units. Um, it's hard enough looking at a, an entire national population, an entire national consciousness. But when you're trying to assess, hey, how willing to fight is this specific brigade? And that falls to for our brigade two shops, 
for instance like how do we how how are we providing a a brigade s2 with the tools that they need to assess the will to fight of the enemy unit that's across the field from them and man i that's that's hard stuff that it uh that gets into like i said a whole bunch of different academic disciplines and um it i hope that we develop the tools to do that and the relatively near future because i think that's going to be an incredibly important part of this uh information informationized war like the chinese call it right yeah i um experimented with some of the, my own uh, techniques as the battalion chaplain to just try to assess that and um uh, i will say like I, I could produce like um some results that seem to echo what I could tell just by like talking uh, to people, like just kind of uh, mingling around, but it was never anything uh, for one. It was always a lagging indicator that like, this is how they felt on this day, but it doesn't help really help us, you know, do any kind of predictive uh, work later on, which is not really that helpful in a, uh, a fight. It's like knowing that you sucked going into it doesn't really, <laughs> other than you, you can kind of anticipate that things are going to come apart. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. Uh so like a, we're drawing up on, on an hour and I, I don't want to keep you past that. Uh, Paul, do you have anything else for Mr. Marvel that you wanted to ask? Um, just well, one last question is that um, it sounds like the uh, Chinese army have a lot of reliance on technology and their EW capability in order to gain that information advantage. And um, talking about their morale of their soldiers, um, you know, for example, a chaplain can walk around and talk to our formation, but usually uh, they put whatever they realistically think on the on the web on their social media. Mm-hmm. So, but the Chinese can look at our social media all day, but they have closed network and we don't have access to their social media networks in China. So, is that going to create greater uh, information gap between our formation and their formation? Yeah, absolutely, and that that. Uh... That is a thing that uh, we all talk about, and the the folks that that look carefully at the PLA is the massive disparity in what they know about us versus what we know about them, and the that's compounded by the fact that a lot of what we do know, which we we get high quality information, but it tends to be at higher classification levels, and so is not necessarily that easy to promulgate down to squad leaders and what you know the the lower echelons of our force that might really get something useful out of that information and um that's that's something that's kind of a a fundamental characteristic of an open society versus a closed society um there are we're already doing a lot of the things to mitigate those effects from our end like getting soldiers aware of what their the effect that them posting things on social media might have on vulnerabilities and exploitability and whatnot i think that's a big first step the big thing in the news this week is tiktok right the the that's uh the cpc has a inside channel to this thing that millions of americans including a I would imagine a big chunk of our young service people are using and they're that gives them a, a window into trends and, and thoughts and whatnot in American society that we have absolutely no comparable thing for in China. And so, you know, it, the, the discussion now is what, well, you know, what do we do about TikTok? And that's, that's a policy level thing. 
is being discussed at the highest levels of government. But, you know, to a to an extent, I think that that even if we deal with the TikTok problem effectively, there's just going to be another TikTok, right? There's always the the rapidity with which the social media landscape evolves is almost impossible to keep up with from a policy perspective. So for for military leaders, I think it's super important to be to be training your soldiers to be uh, to develop that culture of hey be careful what you're putting out there be at least cognizant if not uh, fully aware of what family members are putting out there all of that stuff that that's been around for a while um but when it comes to to the other side of that to learning more about uh the pla and trying to exploit their uh their digital signatures in the same way that, that they do for us that's a much more difficult problem to solve. And I, the work that the IC does is very important, but like I said earlier, that a lot of that is constrained by classification issues. The, I think what a lot of that will come down to is being able to effectively communicate trends that we extrapolate from uh, higher level classification sources and get that down to the BCT and the battalion in such a way that it's useful for you guys. And that's, that's a hard, uh, a hard process, right? Taking these very, very large trends or, uh, um, the perspectives that you get at higher classification levels, removing the classified bits and then being able to give lower units something useful and actionable to work with. Um, that's not really a thing that has been done much, especially on, on when we're looking at big kind of social media type platforms, the amount of data that's available is staggering and you know, be, being able to um, provide a useful one or two line thing for a, a battalion or brigade S2 to work with, that's, that's a hard thing to do. And uh, that's, um, some, that's something that I, I don't have a lot of visibility on, to be honest. Um, the quality of the information that we're getting down to lower echelon especially when you guys are moving into a specific theater has to be excellent it has to be spot on it has to be uh reflective of of what's actually happening because we could be setting you guys up for a big surprise if we're wrong one way or the other and uh, that's kind of one of those things i think is it, it's not going to really get exercised until there's a serious confrontation and, you know, hopefully that, that doesn't ever happen. But if it does, that that's going to be one of those uh, center of gravity things that, um, you know, that that's that's winning the information battle before any shots are fired, that fired that kind of thinking. So that's that, you know, that's the, my thoughts on that, basically. Um, but to your question, I think uh, what leaders can do now to, to help um to give us every advantage possible in that domain is be uh, vigilant about that, educating your soldiers about what they're doing online and, and, um, and 
learn as much as you can from open sources and from uh, the intelligence sources that are available up to your uh, particular uh, clearance level and combine those together, right? It, learn as much as you can about the your uh, potential opponents and, and do as much as you can to build that culture of operational security amongst your troops. All right, so thank you. Well, uh, Mr. Marble, it's been an absolute pleasure to, uh, to have you on and talk to us. Um, how can people uh, connect with you or do you have any books coming out or anything like that? Uh, yeah. Um, the uh, I'll give you uh, uh, the link to the uh, China landing zone. That's the, uh, if, you, if you don't have it already, that's the G2's homepage, if you will, for our China education initiatives. And I think it's turned into a pretty useful tool. It's one of those things that uh, we, we, the bottom line is we need to do a better job of marketing this really useful thing that is out there. So it's something that I mention every time I speak to, to units or soldiers out in the field. And it's something that we are, as a whole organization, we're trying to, to put out there is this is a this is a resource that's available for junior leaders to to go and just learn and there what we we're talking about earlier challenges with uh um different ways of learning there's everything from big old powerpoints to multimedia lessons to uh, interactive quizzes and and uh there's several podcasts up there um short videos I, all of that stuff is available on there so whatever suits your particular learning style, you should be able to find something on there and encourage anyone who is interested in uh, doing uh, professional development sessions or or small unit training sessions. Use that as your your backbone, you know, just use the material that we've already built and go and, and get up in front of your troops and and teach them stuff. That That's how that's this sort of grassroots thing is supposed to work. So um, anyway, the landing zone is is, uh, you know, that that's the first stop. Uh, we also we're we're putting out a number of different products that are pretty much at every classification level um, that are getting in much more detail about uh, how the PLA operates at the operational and strategic levels of war, how they operate as a joint force, how they operate in specific theaters, stuff like that. And you can look forward to all of that stuff being published in the relatively near future. That That's, you know, much more uh, high level stuff than what the ATP gets at. And uh, continue it something, uh, we mentioned earlier is the ongoing revisions and um, throughout the uh, institutional learning in the army, that's all influenced by the G2. And so most of that stuff is, is stuff that we've either had a hand in or, or helped them develop or reviewed for them, stuff like that. And as we, continue to, to work to push that stuff out to the force you guys should start seeing that in every course that you go to or at least every tactically focused focus course that you go to so um that material i think is that's where it starts right that's the the baseline for learning this stuff is learning it at uh at or not obc uh, bullock or or the career course or pldc or you know whatever the the um the foundational level military education courses are out there. Um, 
but yeah all uh yeah that's uh we'll we'll include that in uh the uh the show notes that way any leaders out there listening can uh can click uh, through that and uh, get the resources that you guys have put together and then uh reach out to you for any questions uh, yeah yeah that's fantastic and of course uh our our uh we have um uh, the ability to contact our office directly it's on the uh, the landing zone so any any leaders out there that are interested in receiving um that are interested in uh receiving um any sort of direct support from the g2 that's what we're here for so so please uh please don't hesitate to reach out to us yep and um actually uh, we use the china landing zone page for our s2 shop and that helped immensely and that was mentioned on the Raven Report, an article called uh, Learning to Defeat China. So there's uh, all the resources that uh, Mr. Marvel wrote and made, uh, including the videos and the website, link to the website. So please check that out too. Yeah, the, yeah that's fantastic. Yeah, the, the Raven Report is our brigade substack. Uh, so uh, if you haven't checked it out, Mr. Marvel, you should absolutely do that. It'd be another. Uh, yeah, excellent. Yeah, substack. I don't know how familiar you are with it, but it's an excellent, uh, you know, officer development tool or professional development tool, rather. So. All right. Okay. Well, um, thank you again, Mr. Marvel, and uh, I will let you know when we post it. Great. Thank you very much. This has been the Raven Report podcast, the official podcast of the 81st Striker Brigade Combat. You can find more of our content on Instagram at Cascade Rifles or on social.